Hi, everyone. We're your beer-drinking babes. I'm Ashley. And I'm Nagy. And we're from Rock Candy Podcast. Every week, we bring you a story from the world of music while drinking thematic beers. Did you ever wonder how much Charles Manson inspired the music you love today? Did you know that Joy Division and New Order are virtually the same band? Are you aware of how weird Kesha really is? Like how she had sex with a ghost? Do you also not understand what Post Malone is? Because we don't. Well, we got you covered. Behind the Music isn't around anymore, but we're here to pick up the slack. And be a little drunker. Yeah, so go ahead and look for Rock Candy Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you catch your pods. And with that, party on, kids. Party on. Welcome to Crime Crazy, the weekly true crime podcast with Aaron Plyme. And Diana Seacombe. Where we prove... That we know nothing about our legal system. But we're still crazy for a good true crime story. Hey, Erin. Hey, Diana. How's it going? It's going. It's going. It just you? keeps. It just keeps it going. just keeps going. There is never a stop <laughs> to the going. Ever. It is true. It is true. <laughs> I uh, I had a frustrating day because I was trying to celebrate National Donut Day. Which was yesterday. Sure. Couldn't get donuts (laughs) that day either. Oh, no. Well, so Liam's allergic to dairy and eggs. Oh, right. And there's a place in town that makes great vegan donuts. And since I now also live with vegans. Yeah. Liam and I went out for lunch yesterday because it was the first day of spring break or summer break. And we decided to go to the awesome donut shop that has the awesome vegan donuts. And mm-hmm. they were out of vegan donuts. Uh, so I said, well, that's okay. We're going to go to Harati and run some errands today. We'll go back to the awesome vegan donut shop and we will get vegan donuts. Nope. Well, so I called, there are two locations and I called yeah. the one that's closest to me and I asked if they had some and they had a few left, but it wasn't the one that he liked. Okay. So I thought, oh, I'm going to go to the main location because they usually have them later in the day. Nope. Gone. Uh, <sighs> so at that point, I told Liam we could go to the other one. He's like, oh, let's just go home. Oh, <laughs> Liam needs some donuts. So tomorrow we're going to leave early before knitting and we're going to hit the donut place. Get some donuts. And I swear to God, if they're fucking out of donuts again, I don't know what I'm going to do. Oh, man. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. I did so. have a donut today. <laughs> oh, man. I kind of wanted to stop at the grocery store and get a donut, but then I'm like, that is a super dick move. <laughs> right. <laughs> Sorry you can't have a donut kid, but mom's getting one. That's right. It is National Donut Day, you know. <laughs> it may or may not be National Donut Day today, Diana. <laughs> well, observed. Oh, what with, okay. What with the shortage of yesterday. I see, I see. Yeah. <laughs> like that you get to decide when National Donut Day is observed. Well, apparently the donut shop's not going to help me out with that. That's true. It's true. Oh, man, they make Shame. such good donuts, too, and I could eat none of them. Yeah. They, it is, they are really good donuts. Maybe they'll sponsor us. Maybe. 
You know, they never tell you when you become a parent that sometimes you have to forego donuts. No, I, it really is irresponsible. That should be like, I don't know. Um, sex ed one Oh one. Yeah. If you have a kid, you might not always be able to get a donut. Really? They should just teach you the tricks of like eating donuts in the bathroom with the door closed and locked so that you don't have to share. Oh, yeah, that's where. Well, should we talk about our new format? Shall we? Yeah. Or. So, what? Or. Oh, damn it. Or, what? You want to talk about something else? Should I tell you? Uh-huh. That Crime Crazy is sponsored by Dave Hat and Seb Bryce. Woohoo! Show sponsors support Crime Crazy through Patreon at the $10 per month level or above. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Do you know what? 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 Do you know what? what? Do you know what today is? You know what? I honestly have no idea what today is. It's some. I think it's June. It is June. But I, it's also yeah. the first time we're recording this month. Ooh. Yeah. I know what day it is now. What day is it? It's it's shout out for Patron Day. A special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. Brian Williams. Woo. Dave Hat. Thank you. Eric Boscana. Thank you. Jess Lee. Thank you. Patty Snow. Hello, thank you. And Peg Pool. Thank you, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. If you would like to be awesome like those folks, check us out on patreon.com slash crimecrazypod. Yes. Do you know what else we have today? What else do we have today? We have uh-huh. review shout outs. <gasps> This is such a great day. I'm so glad we decided to record. Except for the whole donut thing. Well, except for the donut thing. That's tragic. But this is making up for it. This is making up for it. (laughs) Diana's real sad about these donuts, guys. (laughs) So on our website, you can click buy me a cup of coffee um, and we could spend that money on Diana's donuts. Oh, that'd be great. I would love a donut. If you guys could get on that, that'd be amazing. Right? Anywho, we do have reviews, which are like really close to being as good as donuts. Okay. Thank you to the Carol sisters. Well, thank you very much. And thank you to La Foster. Oh, thank you very much. (laughs) I like that person. I do too. If you would like to be awesome like those folks, uh, please rate and review us on your podcast catcher of choice. We give shout outs for all reviews. We're cur- Oh, but we really like the five star ones the best. We sure do. We're also currently giving stickers for reviews. That's what I was We are. Say. And I've got a couple of emails for stickers I need to send out. Nice. I sent one out yesterday that um, had emailed and asked a really long time ago. Um, Patty, your sticker's in the mail. Sorry. Hey. Thanks. <laughs> I, uh, I need to go buy some envelopes. you can follow crime crazy on all the social medias at crime crazy pod or visit our awesome website at crimecrazy.com woohoo yeah okay all right so now now should you tell everybody about our new format yes so it's the summer and Finally. while all of the teachers are breathing a very temporary sigh of relief before they start prepping for their next school year, 
<sighs> um, and all of the parents are crying because now they have to take care of their own damn kids for a while. Um, me included, but you know. <laughs> My job got super busy. And Wait, what? I know. My job got hella busy for the summer, and which it's awesome. Awesome, awesome. However, um, I'm barely making it through the work week at this point. So I know I'm not going to make it through double research and editing and all of that good stuff. And so we have reached a compromise so that you still get your episode fix, which is Minnesota Minisode. Yay! Yay! So for the summer, we're just going to alternate telling stories. Same format. Same awesome stories. No cannibals this week is my guess because Diana's telling the story. Oh, yeah. Nope. No cannibalism. No cannibals. I don't think um, I said that right. Cannibalism. <laughs> <laughs> but don't worry. Next week, it's my turn. But I do have something to add to this episode. <gasps> I learned learn something. something. Do tell. Okay. So, um... There are these things that everyone sees all the time, right? But if you are like me and everybody that I have asked just to make sure that it wasn't just me, <laughs> you don't really know how they work. And these things are water towers. Ah. Do you know about water towers? Yeah. Do you know what they, how, what they do? They're for water pressure, aren't they? Well, Diana, fuck you. <laughs> Cutting that part out. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, okay, so water towers. Well, okay. so the, I mean, they're kind of for water pressure. Okay. So, all right. I and every single person in my life that I asked, and I apparently should have asked you, um, believed that they are there for emergency water storage. Like something goes wrong with the water system or they're, you know, you're in need of a lot of water very fast, which they kind of are like, that's definitely a water tower use. Hmm. And so I was really confused once I got up here and, you know, there's a water tower in every single town and and at least one. And they all have like the town name printed on them, which is really convenient when you don't have any sense of direction like me. Uh, But they like it freezes here a lot. And so I could not figure out how they were not just blocks of useless ice during the winter if their function was to store water. But that is not their entire function. So I'm going to tell you how a water tower works. Wait, back up. Yeah. Does not every town everywhere have a water tower? I think there was like one where I used to live. Wow. But not every town has city water. Well, that's true. I suppose if you're on well water or a septic system or whatever. um, Well, we were on city water and a septic system. Yeah. The whole job cluster. Right? So here's how a water tower works. Okay. Pretend you don't know and humor me. (laughs) (laughs) So you're the person who is in charge of getting water to all the homes in your city. They're in trouble they're in trouble so you own this water plant and in the plant you have a bunch of pumps that pump all of the water from your plant through the filtration system and all that and then they push it out to all the homes right Mm -hmm. which is great so let's just say your city is super tiny and they need 10,000 gallons of water 
on average every hour of the day. Okay. Okay. Um, that's great. So you buy enough pumps to pump 10,000 gallons of water, but then you have a problem because nobody needs 10,000 gallons of water at noon on a Thursday because they're all at work and they're working and they're not showering and they're not cooking and they're not washing their house or watering their lawn. Mm-hmm. Um, however, at nine on a Thursday or at like 7.30 on a Thursday, everybody needs a hell of a lot more than 10,000 gallons of water because they're showering and they're cooking and they're you know getting ready for their day. Mm-hmm. So you, in order to solve that problem, would have to have enough pumps to pump however much water is in demand at the maximum demand time of day, uh-huh. right? Which is really inefficient because then... You don't need that two hours later. You would really just need it in the morning and in the evening. In the middle of the night, no one needs any water at all. So you would just spend all your time turning on and off these pumps. And the majority of them would only get used for like a couple hours a day. Yeah. Really, really expensive. So what you do is you put this giant tank on stilts way up in the air. And you pump all of the water through it. So you have your pumps that will pump the average amount of water, so 10,000 gallons, right? Knowing that there's really not any point in the day where everyone actually needs 10,000 gallons. Mm -hmm. And during the time when you don't need that much, the tank slowly fills up, right? And all the water that is needed goes on. And then during the time when there's a higher demand, there's enough water and water pressure because of gravity to provide all of the water for the homes during the high demand time. So cool. Right? That it was really fascinating. That I is had no idea. I just, I think it's one of those things that like I see it everywhere and I'm like, oh, it's a landmark. It's great. Mm-hmm. So. That's I always what I think learned. of, there's one in Eden Prairie. It's a little bit different designed. Um, and it caught fire when I was in college, when I worked out there. And I have questions. <laughs> I don't remember how it caught fire, but it was under construction. It wasn't full. Like it was, it oh, okay. was being constructed at the time. Because you would think a giant water balloon would not catch Would fire. not, no. It was under construction. It wasn't full of water yet. Um, but the way they're shaped, the fire was along the top and it looked like the Olympic torch. Oh. <laughs> it was pretty awesome. I mean, that, except for the fire part. Except for the fire part, right. Yeah. That's no, it looked really cool. cool. Yeah. Huh. So actually... When you say, what do you think of when you think of water towers? That's it. It's like the one on fire. The one on fire. It's like the Statue of Liberty. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> on fire. <laughs> so it is up in the air so that there is water pressure so that you don't have to have a pump to pump it out of the water tower. Mm-hmm. Right? Because that would not solve the problem. You'd still need the, the pump. But then, yeah. So then is it just the constant movement of water that makes it not freeze? Or do they heat yeah. them too? Um, I didn't actually look that part up. I assume they probably have to heat it or maybe they heat the water that's going into it or something like that. But it also would be constantly moving because there's always water being used. Right. So it's always going through. Yeah. I I would say that most of the time that's probably enough to keep it going, except it got to negative 30, which I didn't even know was a number this year. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably not enough. So there must be some something else. Because I don't think yeah. they're terribly thick. Like, they're pretty sturdy. They're thick enough to hold that pressure of water. But I think they're, like, as thick as you would need to hold that amount of water. Right. 
and not like double walled and insulated and all of the rest of that. Because they're, I mean, they're not, they're big, but they're not that big. Right, right. To think about like providing the extra water you would need in an entire city. Right. Or a chunk of a city. Mm-hmm. That is so, fascinating. I assume there's like one per uh, main water line. So probably one yeah. per plant in most most areas, mm-hmm. and then maybe several if it's like the middle of a metro. Well, I think the the town I grew up in I think had three, and it's not very mm-hmm. big. It's like sixteen square miles, mm-hmm. but it was wells, and I think there were three wells. Oh, okay, yeah. So one hooked up to each source of water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. See, I think ours had two because there were only two areas in the entire place in the middle of the county there was um city water and then in the like upper end of the county where main street was in the courthouse and all that there was city water and then everybody else was on a well huh so we had a little one for main street and then a larger one in the middle of the county so that's what i've learned all right that's fascinating so i've got that covered diana do you have a crime story for me I do have a crime story. I'm ready. Excellent. Two weeks ago on Crime Crazy. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I talked about Victor Lustig, who was the notorious criminal that sold the Eiffel Tower twice, among other uh, crazy shit. Amazing things. I mean, bad, bad man. Oh, my gosh. So when I was researching him, I had only looked at the Eiffel Tower stuff. But then after we recorded, I went and listened to the dollop episode about him. That is, like, that is just a fraction of the shenanigans he was up to. Yeah. It is extensive. Oh, but there is, so there's a thing I learned from the dollop um, and about Victor Lustig that I thought was really cool. Apparently his daughter, who he just doted on and later wrote a book about what it was like to be his daughter. Mm -hmm. But when she was little, she, I'm sorry, he taught her how to tap out Morse code and they would communicate that way in front of other people. Yeah. I am sure only for good purposes. They only ever tapped out. I love you. I love you too. And not, let's see if we can make this guy give us lots of money i don't know that she was involved in that like she was still pretty young when her dad went to jail Um, but there was definitely like they had mentioned that if she was in a room where they had started talking about things he didn't know want her to know about he'd morse code her to leave Um, and then apparently like his last message to her was morse code Um, yeah so i just thought that was sweet that is really cool. I always have kind of wanted to have a secret language with other people in my house. Yeah. We do the I love you hand squeeze thing, and that's pretty much as far as we ever got. Aw, that's pretty so. cute. <laughs> you could teach them all Morse code. I would have to learn it first, but then I could. Yeah. I think that'd be fun. Yeah. So anyway, Victor Lustig is kind of the original con man. And so this week, I'm telling a story of another con man. Some might say the con man of the 20th century, Charles Ponzi. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) I picked this story because although I know what a Ponzi scheme is, I didn't actually know the story of Charles Ponzi and his scheme. I don't either, so I'm excited. 
it's it is crazier than you think it's gonna be oh i'm excited Carlo Pietro Giovanni Guglielmo Tebadaldo Palsy. What the hell? <laughs> they were like, look at this tiny baby. What if we gave him so many names they wouldn't even fit? One, two, three, four, five, six names. Yeah, but how many <laughs> syllables? Oh, Lord, I didn't count that. So also, many. Not sure I pronounced at least one of those right. Uh, you got Ponzi. I got Ponzi. I got Carlo Pietro Giovanni. The other two, I don't know about. <laughs> he was born in Lugo, Italy on March 3rd, 1882. He was from a family that had been well-to-do, but they had fallen on hard times. They didn't really have much. Mm-hmm. He took a job as he got older as a postal worker, but later he was accepted to the University of Rome La Sapienza. Since his friends were richer, they considered university a nice vacation. And he took to going with them to the bars and cafes and the Mm. opera, which is definitely not what I was doing in college. No. And at the end of his four years at university, he was broke and without a degree. Yeah. This was a time in American history where a lot of young Italian men were coming to America and coming back to Italy rich. And Ponzi thought he could do the same thing. He'd go to America, he'd make his fortune, he'd bring the money back home, returning his family to its former glory. So, in 1903, Ponzi arrived in Boston. According to him, he lost most of his life savings gambling on the ship over. He said that, I landed in this country with two fifty in cash and a million dollars in hopes, and those hopes never left me. I mean, that's great and all, but, like, if you're coming here to make money, maybe don't gamble on the way over. Apparently, ships, well, we talked about this with um, the other guy, too. Yeah. The the cross-Atlantic ships were just all the gambling. Sure, but, like, I don't know. Have a little restraint, because why would you want to land in another country you've never been to before all by yourself with no money at all? That's terrifying. I think that you will find that Ponzi and Restraint weren't real familiar with each other. (laughs) (laughs) I bet. (laughs) No. He was quick to learn English. He spent a few years doing odd jobs along the East Coast, worked in a lot of restaurants, first as a dishwasher, eventually promoted to waiter. But he was fired from that wait job for shortchanging customers and for stealing. I mean, that is one way to attempt to get rich. Not a great one. No. Having not done so good in the U.S., he moved to Montreal in 1907 and got a job as an assistant teller in the new Banco Zerossi, which was founded by an Italian immigrant as a bank for other Italian immigrants. Okay. He was known for his charm, so he was a great choice for a bank employee. And this is where he learned about the theory of robbing Peter to pay Paul, which, as we now know, as a Ponzi Ponzi scheme. scheme. Right. Luigi Zorossi, the owner of the bank, paid 6% interest on bank deposits, which was more than double the usual rate at the time. And as a result, his bank was doing great. Mm -hmm. Ponzi eventually rose to the level of manager at the bank, and it was then that he learned that the bank was not, in fact doing great it was in trouble due to bad loans 
He found that Zerusi wasn't funding the interest payment through profits on investments, which is what usually happens, but by using money that was deposited in new accounts. That, of course, is not sustainable. Nope. And the bank failed. Zerosi fled to Mexico with all of the rest of the bank's money. Uh, Of course. he did. He's like, oh, this is going under. I'm just going to grab this. Yep. And later. Uh, This meant that Ponzi was out of a job and out of money. He lived with Zerosi's abandoned family for a while and planned to return to the U.S., but traveling without money is hard. So he went to the office of a former bank customer and found an unintended checkbook. Hmm. He wrote himself for a check for $423.58. That's specific. <laughs> Super specific. Uh, that would be over $11,000 today. Oh, wow. And forged the signature of the director of the company. He then went out, spent a bunch of money, which raised the suspicions of the local police. And when he was confronted, Ponzi held up his hands and said, I'm guilty. He spent three years in the pen for that one. After his release, he moved back to the United States and he got involved in a scheme to smuggle undocumented Italian immigrants across the border. He spent two years in the pen for that during which time he became a translator for the warden who was intercepting leaders from a black hand leader, Ignazio the Wolf Lupo. Um, Black hand, you'll remember, is the predecessor to the modern mob. Gotcha. Um, Ponzi, of course, became a friend of the wolves. Of course. Mm -hmm. It's useful. Absolutely. He had no intention of making this money in any sort of legal way. Like he just goes from crime to crime to crime. Absolutely. And he's bad at them. Yeah. You know, he, you know, his first forged check, he gets caught. It's right. You know, first immigration scheme, he gets caught. First time he stole from his job, he got caught. Right. So yeah, no, he was not very good. Not very good at things. After he was released from prison for the second time, he worked as a nurse at a mining camp Interesting. Yeah. He doesn't really have any um, qualifications for that that I can tell so far. Well, I mean, it was the early 1900s. Not a lot required. (laughs) Yeah. Not a lot of medicine. Right. He lost that nursing job when he underwent an operation to donate skin to a burn victim. uh, And there were complications and he lost his job. Oh. That's a terrible way to lose your job. (laughs) Right? What a bunch of dicks. And I think the burn victim was a coworker, and he was donating the skin and then had all sorts of infections and shit and they fired him, which is rude. Right. He met and married a stenographer named Rose Maria Gineco and worked for a time in her father's business. He eventually took over that family fruit company, but did a bad job and it failed. In 1919, Ponzi became aware of IRCs. IRCs are International Reply Coupons. They were generally used for postage. So a person in one country would send something to a person in another country and enclose an IRC for return postage. Okay. 
The IRC was post at the cost of postage in the country of purchase, but could be exchanged for stamps to cover the cost of postage for a reply. Okay. So this means that the person replying doesn't need to worry about acquiring foreign postage or that real currency has to be involved. Right. So how this might work is, let's say my great aunt in Canada sends me something. She sends me an IRC for postage. I can take that to an American post office and get stamps. Do you get the corresponding amount of stamps for the number of IRCs or for the amount that was paid for the IRCs? You're good. (laughs) So... That that's what got Ponzi's attention because that exact concept is where the potential for profit comes in. So if an IRC is purchased in a country with lower postage rates and redeemed in a country with higher postage rates, the stamps purchased with that IRC could be sold. Right. They're more valuable. They're more valuable. Uh huh. In Ponzi's case, IRCs could be bought very cheaply in Italy because this is right after World War One, so yes. everybody's in a bad economic state over there. They could be redeemed in America, where the postage rate was much higher, and then the stamps could be sold for a profit. And he estimated that due to the market differences between the two countries, that profit could be in excess of four hundred percent. So this does not sound illegal. It's. Are you reading my notes? Sorry. (laughs) I'm just proud of him. He found an actual way to make money that he's not going to go to jail for. Right. So this is absolutely legal. It's called arbitrage. Of course it is. Of course it is. Arbitrage is making a profit by buying an asset at a low price in one market and selling it for a higher price in another market. Totally legal. Cool. Ponzi was all in on this one, but he needed a bunch of capital to make it happen. Right. So he wrote to some friends and promised that if they invested in his new company, he'd double their investment in 90 days. People invested and they were paid. Yeah. In 1920, in January, Ponzi started his own company called the Securities Exchange Company, which is the SEC, which makes me kind of giggle. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> in the first month, 18 people invested and they were promptly paid the next month with money from February's investors. The word spread and he started hiring agents to help him build the business and he paid them really well. He started sending agents throughout New England and New Jersey People were making money. He paid on time. He paid the full amount. And these people were encouraging all of their friends to start investing. He opened the business in January. By June of that year, people had invested $2.5 million in his company. That's more than $30 million today. Wow. By July, he was bringing in a million dollars a week. Holy shit. By the end of July, it was closer to a million dollars a day. Okay, so, dude, from what I have learned from all of these stories, you should retire now. No. You should. You definitely should. (laughs) People are investing like crazy. He opened branches from Maine to New Jersey. People were mortgaging their house. They were investing their life savings. When the profits came in, people didn't take them. 
they reinvested back in the company. But there was a problem. Turned out that it was a real pain in the ass to turn the IRCs into cash. And so he wasn't. Yeah. And his volume was too high. He would have had to buy a Titanic's quantity of them from Italy to sell in the U.S. And then find enough people to buy them. Right. But since the investors kept reinvesting, the interest payments kept being returned to him and he could keep growing and growing. Hmm. He started living the high life. He bought a mansion. He bought a locomobile, which was the finest car available at the time. A locomobile. Locomobile. (laughs) It's a crazy car. It's very (laughs) cute. He brought his mother over from Italy first class. Bought a macaroni company. He bought part of a wine company in hopes that the profits from those companies would help him pay the investors in the SEC. As you can imagine, this drew some suspicion. A Boston financial writer wrote that there was no way that Ponzi could be legally delivering these returns. Ponzi sued him for libel and won half a million dollars. Well, that's useful because he doesn't have any money. A former creditor sued him, and while the creditor didn't win, it did make people think about how it was that Ponzi went from penniless to millionaire in such a short time. There was a run on the SEC, but he paid the people out, so the run stopped. On July 26th, the Boston Post started a series of articles about Ponzi's operation. They worked with Clarence Barron, who was a financial journalist in charge of Dow Jones and Company, to investigate Ponzi's scheme. He proved that the math didn't add up. For Ponzi to be doing what he promised, there would have to be 160 million IRCs in circulation, but there were really only about 27,000 existing. Further, the U.S. Post Office said that IRCs were not being purchased in large quantities in the U.S. or abroad. Oh, no. At least, like, do a little bit of what you're saying so that if someone looks into it, you can be like, well, here's an example. Oh, no. So not only did he not do that, like, he never figured out how to trade this shit in. He never did it. See? He was doing exactly none of it, but he also knew, I don't know. Again, this is just giving the surface of what's out there about this. But I don't know if he, like figured that at some point that attention would come down on him or if he just didn't give a shit. But when he finally got busted, not to give everything away, like all Mm -hmm. the account information was kept on index cards and it wasn't necessarily matched to the right person or accurate or any of those things. It was all very slipshod, not even an attempt to make this happen legally. He was just like, oh, it's hard. We're done. Right. Yeah. Wow. See, he had the potential to make a a really reasonable chunk of money in a legal way. Yeah. And he just couldn't help himself. So once these articles came out and the U.S. Post Office was saying, look, this this can't happen, that caused another run on the SEC. And Ponzi paid out another two million while passing out donuts. Donuts. And... (laughs) <laughs> Diana <sighs> guys really quick go go to the website <laughs> buy me a cup of coffee we will give her the coffee money for donuts I want to run over to the store and buy donuts uh, he was passing out donuts and telling people they didn't have anything to worry about 
So lots of people right. changed their minds and left their money. Well, yeah, because if he's not at all worried and everything is cool. And there are donuts. And there are donuts. So obviously he's doing great and not concerned that this is going to ruin his right. business. It's all about just you just act confident while like, everything is falling Absolutely. apart. So a lot of the investors kept the money in, but that run caught the eye of United States attorney and he started having a look-see. Yeah. Ponzi hired a publicity agent to help him get through this. But the publicity agent found some shady shit and went to the post. That story created a huge run and Ponzi paid them all off in one day. But then his bank accounts were frozen. Ooh. Officials were worried that if enough people pulled their money out of Ponzi's accounts, it would cripple the entire Boston banking system. Ooh. On August 9th, the MA Attorney General released a statement that there was little evidence to support Ponzi's claims of the large-scale IRC deals. Investors were invited to come to the State House to provide their information for the purposes of the investigation. Dun, dun, dun. On August 11th, so two days later, the Post published a front-page story telling all about his time in Montreal, including a forgery conviction and the Zerosi mm -hmm. Bank. That afternoon, the bank that Ponzi partially owned, Hanover Trust, was seized. Eventually, five other banks in Boston would collapse. Oh, no. Charles Ponzi turned himself into police the next morning, knowing that there was no way out of this mess. In two federal indictments, Ponzi was charged with 86 counts of mail fraud. At his wife's urging, he pleaded guilty to one charge and was sentenced to five years. He served three and a half, and when he was released, he was immediately indicted on 22 state charges of larceny. He sued, claiming double jeopardy, and the case went to the Supreme Court, and he lost. That was actually a landmark legal decision um, where it was established for sure that you could be charged for the same crime at both the federal and state level. Gotcha. I'm sorry. I what? learned that. Yeah, you did. You learned something about the legal system, Diana. I'm sorry. What's I didn't mean to. It was right wow. there in the article. Wow. They really should label that shit. <sighs> they really should. <laughs> he went to trial on the first 10 of those 22. And since he was broke, he has acted as his own attorney. He still had that charm. And he was found not guilty on all charges. Holy shit. He went to trial on the next five charges. And the jury deadlocked. He is at, lucky. At the third trial, he was convicted and sentenced to seven to nine years in prison as a common and notorious thief. You know what, though? That is not bad. No. In 1922, word got out that he never became an American citizen because guess what? That shit's not new, you guys. So the Fed started proceedings to have him deported as an undesirable alien, which I'm not usually cool with that label, but this one I feel like yeah, kind of no, earned it. He, he did definitely <laughs> earn that. Yeah. Like, you have caused lots of shit here. <laughs> so much badness. He was released on bail as he appealed the state conviction. He fled to Florida, where he was soon up to his old tricks, but this time with real estate. He was arrested again and charged with violating Florida trust and securities laws, found guilty, 
sentenced to a year in prison. He appealed, was freed after posting bond, and went to Tampa, where he tried to flee the country. However, he got on a ship, he opened his fat mouth to a shipmate, and word spread, and a deputy sheriff followed the ship to New Orleans, where he was arrested. Uh, Taken to jail... The whole thing. Uh, While he was in jail, he reached out to Calvin Coolidge and Benito Mussolini asking for deportation, but was ignored. And uh, after he finished up in Florida, he was sent back to Massachusetts to serve seven more years. He was released in 1934, immediately deported to Italy. His wife stayed in the U.S. and eventually divorced him in 1937. Back in Italy, he went from scheme to scheme, but they never went anywhere. He eventually got a job in Brazil, and while he was there, he wrote his autobiography. His health went downhill. He had a heart attack in 1941. By 1948, he was almost blind. Mm -hmm. Uh, Finally, a brain hemorrhage uh, paralyzed his right side, and he died in a charity hospital in Rio de Janeiro on July 18th, 1949. He had quite the roller coaster experience in his life. Yeah. Like he was everywhere. He was everywhere. He was all over the world. He did all sorts of crazy shit. And this is, again, barely scratching the surface. With that original Ponzi scheme, what I never realized, because again, I, I didn't know the backstory of any of this. Right. Eight months. Yeah. It was eight months. It's so fast. It's just, if he just had not been so greedy. Just a tiny bit of restraint. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's just crazy pants. And, and there's so much more. There are lots of books and articles and all of that. Um, he's really fascinating. But the same as yeah. with uh, our last guy, just the charm and the confidence. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. If you're just, yeah. Yeah. I guess I'll never, that'll never be me. I mean, I've got the confidence, but I'm not terribly charming. I'm not sure I've got either, but I, <laughs> I definitely, <laughs> I think I'll just stick to, you know, working a job. <laughs> yeah. I really like the steady paycheck and health insurance of a job. Right. Without the constant fear that someone might send me to jail. Yeah. I'm pretty excited about not fearing that. Right? <sighs> well, right. Diana. Aaron. I feel like some of the lessons I learned from your story are not what I should be taking away from it. <laughs> so I'm wondering if you have any more responsible advice for us this week. You know, just, just have confidence. And even if you don't have confidence, just act like you do have confidence. Not not to the point of swindling a bunch of people to the tune of millions of dollars, right. but, you know, act as if. Right, right, right. In, in your daily life and to be great at your job and successful at everything, do that. Not while you're stealing money from every person that you meet. Not in order to commit a crime. No, even my poor moral compass says that you shouldn't do right. that. Call your people. Call your people. Your people would like a call this week. It's hot they and like they're suffering. Call. call them. Do I need to call you later? Yes, I'm very much suffering. 
<laughs> well, then let's wrap it up so you can turn the air back okay. on. <laughs> Don't end up on next week's episode. How many of you know the name Linda? How many of you know the name Linda Goff? Or I bet you will have heard of their murderers, though. I bet you will have heard of their murderers, though. And Harold Shipman, Fred West, and Hi, everybody, Harold Shipman. This is Steve. Hi, everybody. This is True Crime Fix, the host of the True Crime Fix, which gives the story whilst giving the victim the loudest voice. Whilst giving the victim the loudest voice. So far, we've covered cases. So far, we've covered cases. Kitty Genovese, Jackie Paul, Kitty Genovese, J.C. Sawyer, and Molly McLaren. J.C. Sawyer. I'll be releasing new episodes. I'll be releasing new episodes every other Friday. Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other available stations. So please stations. come over and subscribe. So please give come my over and subscribe and, and give my podcast. I really hope listen. that you find these. Episodes I really hope that you find these episodes. If you would like further information, if you would like please further follow information, at please follow me on Twitter. Pod at True Crime me on Facebook. True Crime on Facebook podcast. True Crime remember podcast. Stay safe and remember. Look after each other. Stay safe and look after each other. And live life to the fullest. Or what? You never know who. Or what? Might be coming around the next corner. Take care, everyone.